Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. William, if you go through your CV at, or, or what you're engaged in at any one moment, there's an incredible range. I mean, you've just finished the Marion Goodman Show, the, the Ulin's retrospective in China, which has just closed. You've just installed in Istanbul um, on an island in the Bosphorus. Um, you've got Lulu at the Met, which comes to London next year. There's a project in Rome, and, and, and so it goes on. What binds these together is something I'd like to kind of tease out, but it seems that drawing in particular brings things together. And um, I don't keep wanting to bring things back to the Academy, but one of the things that links our artists and, and, and architects is, is, is drawing. Was drawing your way into art, or was drawing the thing you subsequently discovered that actually brought all your ideas together? Was, was it process first or ideas? I think it was avoiding incompetences. I mean, as one does when one goes from children's art lessons to an adolescence to art school when I was the private art school at Johannesburg Art Foundation, there was a kind of teleology that one would work one's way up towards oil painting. I remember, I think when I was 13, I was given my first oil paint set rather than gouache. And that was certainly the anticipation of that's what it was to be an artist. And it was enormous relief when I discovered etching, which was a form in which it was both legitimate and the major way of working was monochromatically. And I think that was, the, that was a huge release, and that's obviously a drawing rather than a painting. You're using a line rather than an expanse of color or a brush. So that changed how it was possible to think of working instead of thinking, does it look nice? Which is kind of a terrible thing if you're an artist to have to ask yourself, but which was the kind of question I had when I was painting to rather saying there's a flexibility and a changeability in etching and in charcoal drawing, in which that, you know, the, the drawing is what it is at the end, rather than that being a direction that it had to go in. So there's a way of thinking in the activity of drawing, which became clearer and clearer as I went on with drawing and etching. So I would say it was finding the medium in which I could feel comfortable and find a way of actually thinking beyond just the medium. Do you carry a sketchbook and draw incessantly, or is it something you try and restrict to the studio? I don't try and restrict it, but I'm not someone who works in hotel rooms or outside of my studio. Certainly in the age of cell phones, I'm more likely to take a, something to remind me as a photograph than draw it. It's a relief, for example, in some of the special exhibitions at the British Museum, you're not allowed to take photographs, and then it has to go back to, and then I remember what the pleasure is of actually drawing in a sketchbook, but by and large there are notes and aides memoir rather than drawings in sketchbooks. I think because of that old Vasarian and Renaissance idea about, you know, disegno against colore, sometimes there's a much greater polarity between drawing and, and, and colour or line and colour than, than might exist. However, your work seems to give evidence that <laughs> disegno is certainly predominant. Is colour something you feel uneasy with, but it's something that doesn't really interest you that much, or it's just something you occasionally use strategically? I think it's something that I have to find. So when there is colour in the work, it's usually a found colour. So for example, taking the different palettes of different maps, there's a kind of astonishing historical specificity to the kinds of range of colours you find in maps from the 1840s to maps in the 1920s, and also geographical. The kind of colour that German maps had in the 1910s, in a very different palette that Chinese maps in the 1960s have. So there's a sensitivity to it. But if you'd said to me, show me, mix on your table, 
the palette that is appropriate to Chinese art in 1968. I certainly wouldn't be able to do it, but I can recognize it when it comes towards me. So it's working with found color the way some people would work with found objects. You use words and imagery consistently, and that's obviously a deep tradition. I mean, you go back to medieval manuscripts and, and so on. But is there a tension that interests you between word and image? Are you looking for some kind of assimilation, or is there a kind of conflict that sparks you? I think that there are, certainly from the early 20th century on, and obviously it has much earlier roots, but even in the world in which calligraphy and drawing aren't the same activity the way they would be in um, China and Japan. I'm very jealous of those traditions. Um, there was a way in which one would have a double reading of something that was both a graphic image, a formal set of how rich the black is on the white paper or how the red sits next to it, and the meaning of the word. So it's somewhere between reading and looking. And sometimes having a text which is almost at right angles to the, to the image or to what is being discussed. Um, but usually with an echo of saying the ambiguity and the the riddle that is posed between the image and the word is kind of at its strongest when it doesn't have a real answer. As soon as you solve a riddle completely, it kind of disappears. But those that hover at the edge of, yes, of, of comprehension for me are the ones that keep us. I, I'm very struck in, in your current show at Marion Goodman's of how, I mean, there are self-contained works. There are works that appear in the films or the, the installations. Um, one of the installations is called Notes Towards a Model Opera. So in a sense, the process of, of how a work comes into, into play is inextricably part of the work. And I suppose as a very successful artist, you have so many projects on the go, it's inevitable that one will feed into another or one will trigger another. Do you ever start in the studio with, metaphorically or literally, the blank page? Or have you always got things on the go and therefore ideas are inevitably generated and it's a question of whether you've got time to, to move to the next idea? Well, the ideas are certainly generated by the activity of making a project. But as you said, there's a large migration of images and pieces of work that shift from one specific work to another. So, for example, the two pieces that on the current exhibition, one is about uh, Chinese model operas and the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and one is a reference to the medieval form of a dance of death. And they both started in the studio working with um, some actors and musicians. I really couldn't say. I'd say to people, we're we going to film for three days. And they said, well, which is the project? And I said, well, I think it's going to be for model opera, but it may be for the dance of death. And in fact, the key part of it transformed and was used in a piece about Trotsky that's on in, um, in Istanbul. So it's almost as if there are fragments lying around, whether they're sound or image or pieces of film which can shift. Sometimes they're used in more than one project, but very often something that's a side note in one becomes a central motif of the next project. Uh, Andrew Solomon, I think it's a beautiful phrase, described you as the patron saint of ambiguity, but he means that in a very complimentary way. And people often talk about your work in relation to the fragment. Um, do you, when do you know something's complete? Is, is, is it when it reaches a, a state of irresolution that pleases you enough, it's complete? Or is it something more pra practical than Marion and Roger said the deadline's next week, so you've got to get the work to wherever it's supposed to go? Well, I mean, deadlines for me are, are productive in the sense it gives you a shape of the... When any project's being started, there's a kind of a vague 
shape of the weeks or the months or the years before it has to be ready. And you, in my head, I kind of see blocks of time of when different things. And so there is a way of working backwards to, to some extent. So it's not all oh, well, the work stops when the date runs out. But there's a pressure of speed, of intensity, that comes from knowing when it's likely to be ready, as with obviously with operas, which have an opening date set, and with knowing when an exhibition will begin, such as the one in Istanbul. Um, and that does give some shape to it. Um, but there's also, there's also an extraordinary charge of energy that grows as you're getting closer to the, to the time. So that it is possible to speed up and new ideas to happen. And in fact, very often the next project is produced by the energy of the last weeks and days of finishing one project. But when you see a work that is exhibited, are you detached enough from it not to want to do anything more to it? Or do, do a lot of your works suggest what else you might have done or, or want to do to, do to them? Well, there are, there are usually fragments that I've thought I would use in it and haven't. And when it's done, I sometimes oh, I'd forgotten about that piece of film we'd done, but was edited out. I wonder how it would be to bring it back. With a piece like the model opera, the piece about the cultural revolution in the exhibition, in fact, it was first shown in Beijing two months ago. But with the knowledge that I would have the next six weeks to tweak it and to correct it. Um, and so it was. It was, it was the re-edited parts of it and I hope strengthened between how it was seen then and how it exists now. But I can't imagine going back to it again now to, to alter it. I want to come on to that piece uh, briefly, I'm, uh, shortly. I'm, I saw it in Beijing in an extraordinary installation in the Ulins. Um, but I want to just go back to South Africa because everything in your work seems either directly or indirectly rooted in South Africa. The connections between South Africa now or its colonial past or its apartheid past and, and the connections between other cultures are things that commentators always make. Um, you still have a studio in Johannesburg. It's fundamentally where you live and work. Could you ever conceive of living and working uh, full-time elsewhere or is, is that inextricably part of your cultural makeup? I mean, it is part of my makeup. It is part of my makeup and it's an extremely productive space to be working with, particularly with the collaborators, the musical and performance collaborators that I have, but I could imagine working or living in London or France or New York, but there's at the moment not a, a need to. Um, but it would not be inconceivable. I'd be surprised even if I lived there that the work didn't still come back and relate to things in South Africa. Do, do you, I mean, it's an odd question, but we get quite obsessed with cultural identity. I mean, prizes, the Turner Prize, you have to be a British artist, but that means an artist living and working in Britain, so you can have been, been born anywhere. I like that kind of pluralism. But do you consider yourself or describe yourself as a South African artist, or do you just say I'm an artist? Well, I'd certainly say I'm an artist living and working in South Africa. Um, to say a South African artist implies there's a kind of specific type that it can be... Um, reduced, and I think the same with it's, it's, it's clear when they say, do you think of yourself as an African artist? And what that calls into question for me is not that I live in Africa or I have a connection, but the idea of Africa as a single coherent thing that one could characterize different work as coming from, except in the form of saying there's an extraordinary range and contradictory nature of different work that is made there by artists living there. So I can understand that as a polemical statement to say, yes, I'm an African artist because the work in many cases looks so un-African. And you have to accept that that is part of what Africa is. Um, 
but it's not a term I think about much. When did you decide or realize that you wanted to become an artist? Was this something that was in childhood or was it something that was much later? Well, my mother always used to say that she thought I was an artist when I was three. Um, this is with the mother's objectivity. Um, Retrospectively rewriting history or genuine, you think? No, I, I, when I, from which, I think from when I was 14 or 15, long before I had any idea that that was what I would be spending my life doing. Um, for many years I thought I would was be making art and doing these activities while waiting to see what, who I would be when I grew up. Or alternatively to see what would be happening in South Africa when there was a transformation. They were kind of interchangeable. So at a certain point, uh, I always used to make a joke about saying, oh, well, in due course I'll get a job in a bank or a building society. And a lot of friends would say, well, come on, when are you actually going to get a real job? And at a certain point, a friend of mine who had a real job in the world turned to me and said, you understand, you are 27. You've never had a job. You don't know what a job is. You are unemployable. Give up this idea that any bank or building society will give you a job and sink or swim with what you're doing. And then I had to say to myself, all right, and I'd practice the phrase, I am an artist. And that's when I started writing in visa application forms and part form, passport applications when they said activity or occupation, I would write artist. And after you've written that enough times, it sounded okay. What about acting? Because you did train at theatre school in Paris. Did you think for a time that y you may be an actor? Well, I, at, when I was at university, I was doing acting with uh, st student theatre groups, and I was doing drawing at the Johannesburg Art Foundation in the evening, and I was studying politics at uh, university. And f many people said to me, I mean, it's nice that you're doing these all, but you understand you really have to just do one. If you want to do drawing, just do drawing. If you want to be in theater, only do theater. You'll fail on all, you know, you'll starve to death between the different restaurants if you try to do, move between them. How right they were, or, or and, perhaps not. Yes, and it took me a long time to unlearn that. I thought, well, this is good advice, let me try it. So I stopped being, I sold my etching press, I closed the studio, went to Paris with and my wife to study theater, realized I was no good as an actor, then thought, well, I've burned my boats as an artist. I'm no good as an actor. I'll try it in the film industry and was no good in the South African film industry at all and discovered I was kind of reduced to being back in the studio making drawings. And many years later when I came back to first making animated films and then started working with uh, Handspring Theatre Company, I discovered that by chance or through the process I was involved in all the activities and I'd at a certain point said, well, to hell with this belief that I have to only do one thing. So there wasn't a willful desire to prove people wrong that one could do all three. It, it just turned out... It, tur it turned out that way, and it took a long time to understand that... Um, and for the work to be seen in the different spheres, or for the different spheres to be seen together. So there was a period when there were animated films shown at animation festivals, and there were the drawings which were shown in galleries, or and there was the theatre work which was shown in theatre festivals and people in the different spheres didn't really know the work at all. And in fact when the films were first invited to be shown in an exhibition, it was with uh, 
David Elliott, who is the curator of the Oxford, yeah. at Oxford, and he came to South Africa to curate an exhibition of art from South Africa in the early 1990s. And at that stage, the animated films were shown in festivals, and the drawings was the art. And I showed him the drawings, and somebody said, oh, well, why don't you show him your films? And I said, but this, he's come to look, he's putting an art exhibition, he's not showing films. And they said, well, still just show him. I thought, all right. So I showed him, and after looking, he said, you know, I'd really like to put these films in the exhibition. And my response was, I was to feel insulted, and then also outraged. I said, but that's an art exhibition. You can't put a film in an art exhibition. I was more conservative than anyone else about the separation of these categories. And it was only when somebody was seeing the exhibition and said, I liked your drawings, but what I really liked was the film, that I would say, did you really? But it shouldn't be there. It's like a television set in a room full of drawings. And then kind of had to be brought to understanding this, in fact, was what I was doing and was part of the activity. So most of the good ideas or fortunate things have been not through a good idea, but through discovering what I had been doing in spite of myself. So in a sense, that sounds liberating. The realization that whatever you felt compelled to do was part of the same, ultimately the same process, that had the same motivations, and could be used, utilized, displayed in, in, the, in, in, in the same way. Well, it certainly made me very um, wary of my own thinking, of my own good ideas, what was possible, what was not, and very open to what seemed to emerge in a much less directed way. And I think that, so after that, I, when I understood that, I said, well, I will never write a proposal because I don't trust my proposals. I will never write a script because I know how flat the script will be compared to what may emerge if I don't use a, a script. Is, um, is there something performative about what you do in the studio? It, 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 do you have to step outside yourself? Or is there a self-consciousness about starting to, to draw? Or is that disconnected with your, when, when you act or perform in your own, uh, in your own work? No, I think there's, there's a performance which, is, which you can identify afterwards, which, for, for example, is the pacing and pacing around the studio. Not so much, it's a kind of gathering your thoughts. It's gathering the energy for the first mark to be made. But there's another kind of performance which, to some extent, I think we all do, but it becomes kind of clearer in the studio, which is sort of splitting yourself into two very different persona. So you have the self that is at the drawing, standing at the wall or right at the table, making the drawing where it's a series of marks that happen quite quickly and very close up. And then there's the characteristic thing of stepping back to look at what you've done. But what that stepping back does every time, if it does it with every frame if you're making an animated film, but otherwise if you're making a drawing very often or a painting, um, is you step back and you become a different person. And you say, well, who is the idiot who's just done that drawing? You can see it's completely out of proportion, it's wrong. And you send instructions to that other self that has to walk back to the drawing to you know, lift the belly, change the shoulders, uh, work more conscientiously. You know, you've done 20 years of drawing, is that the best you can do? Go and, it's embarrassing. And then you step back again and give a new set of instructions. I'm sure it's the same with writers. When you write, you write something and it's great when you write there at the typewriter and then you read it and there's a complete sense of someone else who's, who's done it once and dissatisfaction. So in that sense, there's a kind of performance which is done physically by the movement from the picture back across the studio to re-look at it. But there's obviously also within the activity of drawing um, a performative element. In fact, when I occasionally 
give drawing workshops or any workshops to artists, almost all the exercises I give them are exercises from the theater school, um, which have to do with different degrees of tension in the body with, does your drawing come from the belly? Or is your mark coming all the way from your body as it's being done? Or is it coming from your shoulder? You're drawing from your shoulder or from the elbow or just from the hand? Or when you're almost finished, are you reduced to just using the knuckles? And to make a kind of an awareness of and find that is, is, a, is very much part of the studio as a physical, not just a mental space. It's kind of method drawing as well as method acting, I suppose. Um, I don't want to be too literalist, but yeah. it does, it, it, it's a wonderful image of you in the studio. Do you literally chunter to yourself, or is this an internal monologue? Do I literally talk to myself? Yeah. No. What's, so you, no, I talk to myself. Occasionally, there's there have been some projects which have tried to trace the kind of prehistory of a drawing, the prehistory of the drawing that floats through your head in many different forms before the first mark is put on the sheet of paper. And that has to do with these kinds of shifts with the not just a peripheral vision as you walk around the studio and see the fragments that's on the wall, but also a kind of peripheral thinking, vague ideas that coalesce into something. And so when I've made some films of this process, you know, filming myself twice as the person drawing as the person standing back, then it does get articulated. Um, I, but no, I don't, I don't talk aloud while... There's a very distinguished artist who, name, who shall be nameless, but he once confessed to me that there were times when he was working where the dominance of particular artists would, he would just suddenly yell out into the studio, fuck off Picasso, and then carry on doing yeah. what he did. And, no, no, and I, I was collect, hoping that there was that kind of you admonishing yourself for, not, for my not collection. As, not as, but I can, this, this, the, this, the feeling and the impulse, I can completely sympathize with. The, also the, with Picasso, <laughs> of completely going back and back and looking, and also saying, okay, it's enough. And, uh, and feeling that also when you've done this work, which you assume is your own, and then you look at it and you say, oh my God, this is like Picasso's leavings. It, how, how artists work with history and how one uses history is obviously a, a very complex and, and layered thing. There are often explicit references to other artists in your work, Manet, Velasquez, Goya, um, Holbein, Roger van der Weyden. Um, do you use history in a kind of promiscuous way or do you try and systematize it for certain projects and then find subconsciously other things are creeping in? No, no, there's a complete promiscuity in what is allowed. And I mean, any image has, gets given the benefit of the doubt to come in. Even if saying, well, it starts off and it's just a remake, it's a copy of this, uh, this Manet or this one, it's done on the basis that if it can start like that, and maybe that particular picture doesn't go any further, but in that process of making it, the hope is that there will be other sets of associations and connections that will lead to work that is different from the, the, the referent. But there are very often very you know, quotations from, from other work. The pre first president of this academy, whose statue is out in the courtyard, rather like Benjamin's Angel of History being sort of almost blown over by the detritus of those extraordinary trees by Ai Weiwei, um, proclaimed that history was the highest form of art. And one of the reasons he set the Royal Academy up was to elevate British art to the status of, of continental art, and, and history painting was the, was the main means. Um, I once asked Anselm Kiefer whether he's a history painter, and he said, took great offence in a, in a comical way, and said, no, no, I'm not an academic artist in that way. But of course, history is his central subject. Um, how would you plead if I accused you or asked if you were a, not a history painter, but an artist for whom history was a, a central subject? 
son of a lawyer as well, so you, you need a plea. <laughs> I need to plead. Um, you know, there are works which are about life in the studio, about how one constructs a, a meaning in the specific space of the studio, which I thought of weren't history paintings at all, but they're history paintings in the sense that they refer back to that idea of what is happening in the studio, in that kind of space. They refer back to Bruce Nauman more recently and Corbet. to painting Courbet and to Jackson Pollock and the films of him in the studio. So there's a, a kind of a specific history of the field of making images that the work is very much in. Um, but you deal with contemporary but life they do. as well. But there, and there are you know, more and more works that have looked at different pieces of, and different periods that it's, that have been examined, whether it's um, Russia in the, the Soviet Union in the 1920s with the nose, or, the, or China in the 1960s. There are many, or German Southwest Africa in 1900, um, that I'd have to say, no, I'm happy with that appellation. I mean, as one of the appellations. I would hate it to be only that, or to, and even more than that, I think that if one is hoping to get a good historical narrative and correct historical laying out of the field, then you'd be hard pressed to find it in the work. But it's raw material to be, to be used and importantly abused. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're often, I mean, not often, you, you're invariably described as a, a political artist, um, which is something you, you say absolutely, but your view of political art is, is um, very specifically open-ended. It, it's not propagandist or it's not uh, dogmatic or it's not a kind of manifesto. Um, it, it, is, is politics still a motivation for you in, in what you do? Well, a kind of, and obviously there's a moment, this part of it has to do with outrage at things that happen in the world and trying to, and the hard work of hanging on to that in the face of growing older and becoming more blasé and more jaded about the state of different things in the world. So trying to hang, which is quite often done by putting the reference back to my memory of impulses when I was much younger. Um, so the piece in the, about the 1968 Chinese Cultural Revolution, in some ways has as its spark my memory of being 13 years old in Johannesburg in 1968. And the regret and the wistfulness of not being in Paris in 1968 and 18 years old to be part of that grand event. Your explorations of and use of imagery for, from the Cultural Revolution, by definition, is also a, a reflection on what happened in South Africa and what happens in current South Africa. It, there's, an, it, there's an interconnectedness that you're looking at, and that politics is one of the motivations in almost everything you do. Political it's exploration a, of, of a sort. Political exploration, but it's also the broad, if I look back at the last few years of work and the different things which have been looked at, the Soviet Union, Trotsky, the Cultural Revolution, even the refusal of time. It has to do with uh, the difficult, unanswered question for me of the relation between a kind of form of utopian thinking and an awareness of the disasters that have followed people trying to implement that vision of the world by all that is necessary to do it. So, for example, in the refusal of time, which is a, really a, an installation about both the history of time and histories of ideas of time, um, it has to do with how we relate to our fate, what can we control and what can we not. And understanding that we all know the black hole that is waiting for us, both cosmically but also uh, our immediate literally, death, yeah. literally. But understanding that in spite of that knowledge, there's this extraordinary energy to do what we do in the world. It's not as if the knowledge that it's going to come to naught 
stops the activity of wanting things to happen, of doing this extraordinarily busy arabesque set of movements during the 70 or 90 or 50 years that we are here, which in a strange way, I'd not thought of it until the works were finished, has to do with also with even in the knowledge of the difficulty and possibility of achieving those kind of huge utopian ideals, there's still that energy towards the hope for something different that seems vital. So to hold those two things together becomes, if there is a politics, the politics of the work. As you said recently, I think, in or some lecture notes I read, looking at, in the aftermath of the Second World War in Paris, um, in a sense, people had to stave off existential angst or pessimism. You're saying in the aftermath of the, of the breakup of apartheid, post-apartheid, or South Africa as a post-apartheid society, that the, 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 the key, in a way, or what, one of the things you felt one had to do was try and stave off the, the optimism. It, 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 are you naturally, uh, I don't say cynical, but are you, are you naturally skeptical? Uh, are you naturally pessimistic, optimistic, or it, does it just depend on, on, no, on the cultural I think, situation? I think in South Africa, for example, people say, are oh, you a pessimist, are oh, you an optimist? Um, as if there's a fence between and you have to do it. But the thing is to understand there is no fence. And that certainly at the moment there is both an optimistic future unfolding, extraordinary things being done and goodwill of people, and there is also an extremely damaging and difficult one could say pessimistic future, unfolding at the same time. It's not that one is right and the other is wrong. In retrospect, one will, of course, with full hindsight, say, well, it was inevitable that these different things were happening. But in the moment, there is that two futures unfolding, or more than two futures, and to try to reduce it just to one is to miss, is to forcibly con constrain it into a, a simplicity that is fundamentally wrong. And I suppose that's the same with the idea of the riddles which can't be solved. And to think of the future as a riddle with a solution, the solution of the Sphinx, the riddle of the Sphinx, it's absolutely not that. Do you think you have a significant voice in South Africa? I think to the international art world, you, you know, absolutely you do, but I'm very curious as to how you feel your impact or what you do and make and how, how much impact that may have. It, that may not be your motivation, but I'm curious as to how you feel your, uh, your, your, your voice is heard or not. Well, when I started out making images, I felt a very direct connection between the image and the politics in South Africa, kind of agitprop necessity of an instrumental link. These are the images that shop stewards in trade unions need to see. These are images that have to be shown and people will see them and transfer. But it, that always implied such a kind of patronizing assumption of knowing what other people were thinking or what other people would understand. And I realized that I was very bad at that and that's in fact when I stopped drawing for the first time. And when I came back it was very much with the idea I would be in the studio, I would be working with images and stories and ways of working that interested me in the hope that if they did and worked, there would be other people who would make connections to them. And that's still very much the way I work. So the, the only real demonstration to other artists in the country or to younger artists is the, what happens in the studio. And an openness to looking at other people's work, but not being part of committees and um, thinking that the artist's work is outside the studio, or my, my work is outside the student. I think for a number of younger artists, it's very much one of the important things in the country. Um, for a lot of middle or slightly older artists, they're kind of sick and tired of seeing and hearing the work. 
um, which feels understandable, I could imagine that very clearly. Um, but it's seen, it's certainly seen in South Africa and part of the, the art world in South Africa. Do you, have you ever set out to generate some kind of visceral response or shock in your work? No, there's work that has emerged from a visceral response inside me, drawings and sets of images and that burn into me that become part of the work. But the work is, I think, pretty restrained. It's not really looking at... I often hope I'm making a comedy, but usually people tell me they're not comedies of the work that's done. You do hope you're making a comedy? I hope so, but I think maybe the fact that it's in charcoal, so it gets quite dark and depressing, um, is, not, is not good. No, I, but again, I read somewhere that where you said that you didn't seek to make comic art, but you wanted to explore the absurd, which was by definition yes. comic. Um, it's true. I mean, and I'm interested in the absurd as a category of describing the world, which is very different from the, the foolish or the ridiculous. The absurd has to do with a particular logic that's gone awry and then been followed through to its nth degree, which is one way of describing what happened in, under apartheid in South Africa. We would have these ridiculous categories of dividing people up, but then follow them um, to a place which showed their very ridiculousness. And I think that's, that's why the absurd has always been a, a central category for me. Both also in its non sequiturs, in its refusal to say this is going to fit into a grand plan, into a single logic. This will be work which defies uh, a kind of analysis. So the nonsense poetry of the Dadaists, which has to do in its very nonsenseness as its, as its strength. I'm also curious about the way different places, different cultures respond to your work. I was horrified to discover, I mean, I remember seeing your show at the Serpentine 15 years ago. I didn't realize that it was in London that you were accused of anti-Semitism, particularly in the depictions of you know, Soho Eckstein, one of, one of your displaced self-portraits. How, or well, we might deal with that in a minute, but in China, for example, in Beijing, were you aware of how audiences have responded, or was it actually mainly a liberal kind of international audience that saw the show in, in um, Beijing at the, the Ulins? No, I think there was a, a large number of Chinese either artists or people who went to exhibitions. I'm kind of the wrong person to ask. You would need to have asked people that you knew or other people around to really get... I mean, the artist's always the wrong person to ask, because people who love the show or the work come and speak to you, and people who generally don't like it, generally don't come up. Sometimes yeah, they do, to tell you how much they disliked it, but, yeah, but that's much less common. So in that sense, and also you leave kind of when the exhibition starts. So I really, I, you know, I know a lot of people saw it for that museum and institution, um, and there's a gigantic world of people looking. So, um, but artists always say they, they can't be interested in, in the response, or they I can't. Am, I am interested in the response, but I couldn't tell you I'd be making it up if I said everybody loved it or if I said, well, people were indifferent to it. Context, of course, though, is critical. I mean, the, 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 Beijing, the, the notes towards a model opera was made with Beijing in mind. It took Madame Mao's model operas. Now you're showing it in London. Um, I'm curious as to, as to how you find how much context does shift meaning. I think when it was in Beijing, it gets kind of overread as something made specifically for there. In the same way the piece in Istanbul now is about Trotsky who was in exile in Istanbul and set in the place where he lived. And in a way that context overshapes the reading. And I'm interested in both of them out of that context in which they're 
meaning expands from being just about Istanbul or just about China and the questions of, as a catchphrase, utopian thinking and its impossibility gets a stronger role. And then I suppose the meaning of a work, I mean, it, it accrues layers of meaning through its own history. Presumably that interests you as well. Or is that just something you can't work with at all? I mean, when the fact that, I can't yeah. offer in a minute, but you make a work and then actually other works are suggested and then you, you move on. So having done the, the piece in, uh, in Beijing and then seen it in London, does, it, does the shift of context in any meaningful way suggest what other work you may then do? But yes, it does, but in a formal way, in an entirely formal way. So, for example, in Beijing, the projections, the three projections of the notes towards a model opera were projected on screens that were a little bit bigger than that, but not much bigger because of the configuration of the room. Uh, and also because I arrived, the balls had been built, it was there, it was a fait accompli. In London, when doing the installation, we'd first started with screens that size. Um, as they had been in Beijing. And then right at the end said, well, let's, with Roger, let's try it. Um, Make it very immersive. Different yeah, Make it, it the size of the room. And that's when it was decided. And then, for example, it was, paint, it was projected on uh, painted boards, which felt like the wrong color. So he said, well, before we repaint the boards, let's just put different sheets of paper on to see how they look. And we rolled brown paper on top and put it up very roughly, thinking, well, if we like it, we'll do it conscientiously. But then discovered, in fact, it looked like it was projected on unrolling scrolls. So both the scale and the, the important surface on which it was done came very late in the process, the day before the opening. It did change, which makes me very interested now in those different colored surfaces for projection and being both close to in a very large scale screen. So that kind of uh, context throws up new ways of thinking or looking at, at pieces. And implicating the viewer as well, that we become more, we, be, we become players or, or, or bit part actors on the periphery of your piece. Yes, I mean, it does change how you, whether you're watching it from a distance or you're aware of it all around you. And it, when it was on white boards, very white boards, the projections are so large and so bright that it was really a kind of assault. You couldn't look at it because of the brightness of the light coming back into your eyes that close. But when it was put on the brown paper, it both made the three screens more coherent together, but also reduced the immediate brightness as an, as an assault. And you could have it much larger in that close space. So they're, they're parts of the meaning of the piece, but which are achieved through the in what I suppose one could describe as formal considerations. Talk briefly before I throw you out to the floor about this project you're doing in Rome um, on the, the walls of the Tiber. Um, it's a project next year and you're working with the pollution and the bacteria of, of the river it itself. Just explain how that project's evolving and, and what you're doing. Well, physically the project's uh, there's a wall of the Tiber from Ponte Sisto towards the Castel Sant'Angelo, which is 500 meters long and 10 meters high. And in a way, the, the more sweetly play the dance, the processional film was also thinking about a very long form. And at one stage, I thought that would be where the film would be projected. But in fact, it's a series of, it's a freeze. It's as if you've unrolled Trajan's column. And it's about triumphs and laments. So it's looking at Roman triumphs, which is so much what the city's about, but making, I suppose, the quite banal and obvious point in the freeze that for everybody's triumph is someone else's disaster. 
and the laments that go with that. Um, so it's a series of figures, a lot of them taken from images of Roman and Italian history. Um, so some of the triumphs are uh, Marcello Mastriani and Anita Ekberg in a bath, not in the Trevi Fountain, so you can pull the bath. Their bath can be pulled along with them from the Trevi Fountain, the ecstasy of St. Teresa, and many of the other images which are kind of disastrous. Um, what happened to Jews connected to the ghetto and how they were treated during Roman Carnival, which is part of the kind of Renaissance history we were never taught at art school. That at the same time all these glories were happening in the churches, a hundred meters away, there was a very different experience in the ghetto on that same edge of the Tiber. So that, in a sense, was the outrage, which is a spark behind it. But I was approached to do something on the river by a woman, Kristen Jones, whose project for many, many years has been to revive the section of the Tiber and to get different artists' projects on it. So you were given the site first? Well, she suggested the site. It's, and uh, neither of us was given the site. Both of us have are in an ongoing fight for the site and an ongoing fight to persuade the cultural ministries of the city and the country that firstly there is a place for contemporary art in the historic center of Rome which many of them hate and say over their dead body will there be contemporary art visible there and also to say that they won't control how the history is depicted once they goes ahead it goes ahead and we see what's there um, and the way the piece is done, I mean, the, the walls of all the marble in Rome is very dark. Part of it is pollution, but the major part of it, in fact, is a black bacteriological growth. And the way of doing the images is to have silhouettes. So, for example, you have a silhouette of my hand that you want to see as a dark shape on the white wall. Nothing is drawn on the wall. What happens is a silhouette is put up, and then the space around the image is washed off the wall. So the pollution and bacteria is simply cleaned. So you have the clean marble walls and the image is the residue, is the pollution and the bacteria. And then in about four or five years, the pollution and bacteria even out in the image fades off the wall. So it's not a permanent defacement. It will only be five years, it won't It'll be. It'll be four or five years. And it'll slowly fade away, which may be its best moments when it's half there and half not. And so there's a, a very interesting notion that you, know, you, you have to you cleanse or purify in order to reveal the image contamination is all around I mean and in your work that kind of layering of, of cleansing cleansing of history ethnicity and so on um, these are all things that just emerge out of the process and the opportunity that that, that emerge I mean and that's a it would be a very different thing to say take your responsibility of doing a mosaic that size that is going to sit on those walls and that that interpretation is going to be the definitive one on that huge stretch of space um, whereas this one, you feel the worst that happens is people avert their eyes for three years if they really hate it. And it's also quite gentle because the pollution is not completely black. It's different tones of grey. So the image is sometimes quite faded to begin with and other times very, very clear. But the main part of the project, the first three years, were trying to get permission, getting permission to do it. And then the second part will be getting the funds to do the, the whole thing which is going to be a lot easier, I think, than the permissions. Well, the permissions are theoretically there now, and it'll happen early next year. How many offers, proposals, do you have to say no because of time, of that kind of magnitude? Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there, are, there are a lot of opera houses that have offered productions, which, but each one takes so long that I'm happy to do one every five years or three years. Um, so those get turned down. 
There are a lot. There are a lot. A lot more. There are a lot more possibilities to which I have to say no than those I can say yes, and I do say yes to more than I should. And how much does being so successful and, and the reputation that you have, how much does that liberate you, facilitate you? It gives you all these opportunities. You can sort of choose the ones that you, you, you really want to well, do. Well, it does. It does in... But how much does it add to the pressure of, you know, in certain ways, if people commission you, there's certain levels of, 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 of uh, achievement. Yeah, expectation and so on. I mean, is that restrictive or in any meaningful way? I don't think that changes it. I mean, I think part of a kind of occupational hazard of being an artist, wherever you are, is the lying awake in the th three in the morning and saying, well, I know the last project worked and the one before that worked, but this one can only be a disaster. If only I'd said no to this project, then I could have been happy. And it's a lesson one never quite learns because at that time in the morning, it's completely convincing the disaster you're heading towards. And sometimes you do. You go into it and the work in the end doesn't work and you've gone all the way. But it does make an enormous difference knowing that you'll be given the benefit of the doubt at the beginning. That people will actually look at it and engage with it and then either like it or not like it or feel it's a bad mistake. But the terror of when you started, when I started off as an artist was thinking of the physical weight of the canvases, of the wood, of the paper that was just kind of accumulating and the, the, the terror and weight of this lifetime of work sitting there unwanted behind you does make you more conservative and more, con or did make me more conservative and constrained. Making a sculpture, for example, if you know there's a good chance that someone will want it, it's much easier to undertake it than thinking, I'm going to make this piece, but then I'm going to be storing it. It's going to be sitting behind me here in the, in the studio. So it, there's no doubt that on the balance of it, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift to say that you can work in an open and light way, not knowing what you're doing to that there's been established the safe space for stupidity in the, in the studio. Does architecture interest you, uh, as in working collaboratively with an architect in order to create structures or spaces or buildings? Because in some ways you've worked on architectural scales, you've come quite close to it in the way that things are installed. But is that a, yes. or is that a, or is that a boundary, a, a line you, you, you won't cross? It's not that I won't cross it, it would be a very bad idea if I did cross it. I think I, have a, I don't have a good three-dimensional sense of space, certainly not in my head to start working with it. And even the sculptures that I do usually start off with a very two-dimensional premise. So there may be fractured sculptures in different layers which are kind of incoherent from all positions but one where the different fragments coalesce but as a kind of two-dimensional image. And they're usually made with flat planes to start with rather than mass. I think of the doll's house I made for my younger sister. It was the most boring, terrible piece of architecture, the structure between anything could have been possible. And it was like a you know, conservative suburban house was the best I could come up with. Um, that's a no. That's a no. <laughs> we could and should go on, but we've hit time. I'm not sure absurd is the right way to describe what I'm going to do. William doesn't know I'm going to do this. But there's a certain kind of ceremonial aspect. Um, when academicians are elected, there's usually a ceremony behind closed doors or in their studio where their diploma is awarded to them. Um, because you're not always in London and because the academy, no one's been going out to South Africa the last few months, years. Um, so I've been given this certificate. Her Most Gracious Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, patron of the Royal Academy in London, founded by the Royal Ancestor King George III, having... <laughs>
been pleased to approve and confirm the institution by Her Majesty Queen Victoria of a class of member to be called Honorary Academicians of the said Royal Academy of Arts to consist of distinguished painters, sculptors, architects and engravers according to resolutions submitted to Her Majesty by a General Assembly of Academicians held in the year 1868, being the centenary of the foundation of the Royal Academy, we, the President and members of the Royal Academy of Arts, in consideration of your great skill as an artist, have the honour to elect you, William Kentridge, an honorary academician, signed by the President. Now, without, without mentioning names, the last person that was given this then took it off to the pub and it fell out of the um, container and then was, was found by our archivist. So if you'd like us to send it to South Africa, we will. But um, can I, can I uh, reiterate my thanks, William, not just for joining the Academy, which has, has, has made us a better place, but for, for doing this talk. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.